Hello and welcome to another episode of In Theory, the podcast of the JHI blog. I'm Disha Garnajani. I'm joined today by Manan Ahmed, Associate Professor in the Department of History at Columbia University. He's the author of the book, The Loss of Hindustan, The Invention of India, out in 2020 from Oxford University Press. How did you come to, to work on this project? Well, there's two, two kind of answers to that question. One is that uh, being on a tenure track, you're, you're required to come to projects uh, outside of your will um, and in a timeline that is also outside of your will. So um, being on the tenure track at Columbia, which I started in 2012, um, this project was, was not, well, actually both of my books were not the projects that I had in mind when I was, uh, when I was hired at this job. Um, the project that I was right, working on hopefully will be the next book that I publish. But uh, this is a project that has been, I guess, undergirding much of what I've done since the graduate training. Um, I want to, I guess, if one wants to think of it in, in kind of originary moments, it's uh, a graduate seminar that I took with uh, Shahid Amin, who was visiting um, in 2000 in University of Chicago, where I was a graduate student in early Islam. and. In that seminar, um, I was exposed to a series of historians who were writing about the medieval period, um, Indian historians writing about the medieval period from Allahabad, JNU, Delhi, Kolkata, Pune, um, largely in the 20s, 30s, 40s, and then some in the 60s and 70s. And um, in retrospect, I think that class um, and obviously Professor Amin's work had a huge impact on what I ended up focusing on for my dissertation, which was really a question of memory and history. Um, but this project, this particular project, which is how did historians of Hindustan write about Hindustan um, prior to and congruent with the colonial period, um, stayed as a kind of framework for all of the work that I've done since then. And um, after my first book came out in 2016, you know, the timeline was pretty, pretty short. I had to, I had to have another book out soon. And uh, I, during the writing of my first book, I became quite fascinated with Farishta, this historian who's at the bottom, who's at the center of this book, uh, who was writing in the Deccan. And, and I, so after the book ended, I I thought, okay, I'll, let me just read Farishta, and just see what happens. And so I read him really for the first time in depth, and thought, okay, I can, I can write this book um, from that moment on. And so, how how did you then go about writing this book on Hindustan, on the history of an idea that is itself perhaps necessarily based on? the so-called actual facts of place, borders, right. and particular peoples? I think, uh, I think very, very kind of um, prosaically speaking, I guess. Uh, I, so I read this 17th, early 17th century Persian history, which is quite mammoth. It's, uh, the critical edition is, is like four giant volumes from Tehran. Um, and I sit down and I say, well, what do you say? Like, what do you say about it, it to like such a massive work that has so much in it? Social history, economic history, political history, history of ideas. Um, but, you know, how do I think about it? And 
And part of it was that the framing of the text itself, so it's called Tariq al-Farishta, Farishta himself titled it, you know, Gulchan Ibrahimi, you know, it's all these other titles. But like when you read it, in, including its first sentences, you're like, oh, this is a history of Hindustan. It's Tariq al-Hindustan. It's about Hindustan. And I think that's kind of was when I started to think, oh, what does it, what, what? Why is he writing a history of Hindustan in the Deccan? But also, what does it mean to write a history of Hindustan for 17th century? And what does it mean to write and think about Hindustan as a concept after the, I guess, 1947 for me? And so it, was, it wasn't going to be, a, it was going to be a book about Farishta always, but it wasn't necessarily going to be a book about Hindustan um, until I started to wrestle with this notion that much of the kind of conceptual frameworks within which um, Farishta was writing was actually not available to me, including the very premise of his work. Um, so it's not something to do with, you know, someone is writing about kings and queens and princes and I'm, I live in the life of, you know, Congress people and military dictators but rather that um, his language for making sense of the world um, was not the way that I could imagine um, post-partition thinking about subcontinent in a particular way. And that led me to these other historians who both predate and postdate Farishta. What did they say and how did they write about a, a history of an idea, um, which ended up becoming basically the book. And I think because you begin that way and you're very explicit about um, that in your book, I, I was really intrigued by how you framed that problem of, of place. So for instance, you write that, quote, the erasure of the pre-colonial idea of India has meant that it is taken as a truism that there is no coherent concept of peninsular India before British domination. You continue, what is nominally understood by this is that the British were the first to control or claim the entire territory of the Southern Peninsula, end quote. And so this suggests to, to me when I'm reading that part of what's really at stake in your book um, is this disjuncture between how we think about the coherence of the space or what you call territorial integrity and the congruence of that field with a field of political control and the ways in which those do and don't map onto each other. That seemed to me to be one of the, the enduring problems at the center of your book and it seems like the method that you pursue that you just explained um, can really help us think that disjunction between those two things. Can, can you say more about how your book might help us with that? Absolutely. So I think, let me, let me try it through an example. So, so we can, in the marketplace, buy a number of books that explain the idea of America, as in United States, the idea of America type of books, whether it's democracy, et cetera, et cetera. But the, the kind of historical fact is that the America of 1619 versus the America of 1776, like so-called 13 colonies, uh, the America post-Louisiana Purchase, the America that has the colonies of Hawaii and Guam and Puerto Rico, all of these are territorial differences into the same topos called America. Um, at some point, the historians of, of the United States um, ignore this territorial uh, kind of um, divisions, let's call it, or territorial incoherence within a overarching idea 
that gets kind of given a foundational meaning. Even if the person in 1619 or 1776 or any other moment of time saying the word America would have very different idea of the territory would encompass by that. So now, you know, we're very eager to sort of read continental USA in when we're doing shipping of our goods as, you know, without even pausing to think about what that word means, continental US, um, you know. And, and when we think of how a type of political idea becomes valiance, has a valence that transcends its actual temporal integrity, right, um, for one particular case. But in another particular case, in a, in a case such as India um, or Pakistan, but Pakistan including East Pakistan, territorially separate yet within the same purview, or going back to the Mughal Empire, territorially different, and then even bigger, the, the kind of the, the, the idea that I focus on, which is the idea of Hindustan, within which the Mughals are just one players among many. Um, I think that's where, to, for a certain scholars, that becomes incongruous. We can't speak about it this way. You can't speak about subcontinent in the same way because there were so many different political parties and there are so many polities. Um, when the same time period, the same scholar can turn around and speak of US <laughs> with you know, no problem of thinking about various political uh, kind of complexities. Part of this has to do fundamentally with the kind of ways in which scholarship the post-47, uh, both in the U.S. Academy and outside, has formed itself in how to think about medieval or pre-modern past. So, you know, some of the names that I excavated in my own work, and they're not in this book, but I hope some future scholar will look into this. It's like someone like Oscar Spate, OHK Spate, Australian geographer, um, was hired by the Boundary Commission didn't really work for them, then was hired by both the Pakistani state and was attempted to be hired by the Indian state to make atlases for them. Now, why is Spade important? Well, Spade came up with something that becomes foundational to the work of Barney Cohen, for example, the anthropologist historian at University of Chicago who writes about colonialism in the, um, in the 80s. Um, Spade comes up with this idea of, of nuclear zones and shatter zones, so this spoke metal, right? Like there's a center and that's really tight and then there are spokes that come out and there are other regions and this model of nuclear and shatter zone or regional configurations becomes incredibly important in the 50s, 60s, 70s for scholars of South Asia who say, well, there were centers of power. Delhi was a center of power, you know, the Mysore was a center of power, Deccan was a center of power. And then there were these shatter zones, these places where chaos ranged. So you can look at uh, Rotterdam's um, History of India textbook. You can look at any, actually any textbook of South Asia, India before Europe, etc. They all have the same thing, right? Like 600 to 1200 competing principalities, chaos, um, there's Ashoka, and then there's Akbar, and then there's the, you know, um, British East India Company. What happens is that in this type of formulation, theoretical formulation, um, we, um, as scholars, we tend to minimize the ways in which people made meaning of their daily worlds, it includes their daily political worlds. Um, and so the idea is, well, the Mughals were not rulers of X place, 
Hence, that X place was not Mughal, and hence was in some other chaotic world. Um, Hindustan was somewhere here and not there. South India is out of it, and all of these types of kind of formulations. And what I wanted to emphasize, and not necessarily just for Hindustan, but I want to emphasize is that their life worlds and kind of conceptual mapping that has happened, that has a very long, durable history. Um, Hindustan being one of those ideas. And this meaning making allows for someone like Farishta to be outside of Hindustan in the political control sense, uh, but be the center of Hindustan in the in the world map that he's making for himself. And I think this the, much of it is, is this notion of control, political control. And I want to just simply say that all of the major theoretical frameworks of political control come in during Cold War. That's literally all of scholarship is Cold War scholarship that is saying, oh, communist zone, you know, US zone, political control, who's gonna fall, states are gonna fall, failed states. Yeah, all of this language of the 60s and 70s is literally the language if you open up a, a book on medieval, you know, medieval India, you will find the same exact language. So it's this idea of control, legitimacy, this, this, all of these words that seem to be atemporal, but are actually very specific to the world in which the US and EU and the European academies were situated in the 60s and 70s, and but are considered to be somehow emic or intrinsic to the time and space that I'm interested in. And, you know, I don't think, I don't agree with it, I guess. And if that's what you're writing against, but also the world in which you're you're speaking and and writing, because obviously, as as you've said, it it, it lingers to say the least. What kinds of archival and reading practices then could could allow you to go back to Turishta or to go back to to these historians of medieval Hindustan, if if that's the kind of barrier between you and and them? I, I, I begin with barriers. Um, I begin with barriers, not only in my own comprehension, I'm, you know, obviously a fallible person who can only make sense of so much, uh, even that perhaps uh, wrongly. Um, but a very important part of my methodology for my first book, um, A Book of Conquest, was that I spent um, almost two and a half years uh, walking in sin various parts of sin, walking in Uch, which is the place where that book is based in. Um, and <clears throat> for me, my methodology came through a type of encounter, let's just say, of me as a researcher and stories and narratives about the past that, um, that were outside of the texts that I was looking for and looking at. Um, and those encounters not so much as illuminated what I needed to understand in the text, but illuminated the type of questions that I wanted to ask off the text. So they weren't uh, a way to transcend the text. They were a way to transcend the researcher, uh, me being the researcher. So um, how am I trained in the US Academy? How am I approaching a, a historical question? How can I be changed as a as a, as a researcher was my, my kind of primary goal. Not that I would find something in the texts um, as a result of these encounters. When I began to do this book, 
I can't. I couldn't do that method. I have never been to the Deccan. I, I can't tell you anything about the Deccan. I can't experience it. I, I, you know, I'm a Pakistani citizen who cannot have access in the best of times. In the best of times, I had limited access, and in in these times, I have zero access to the country called India. Um, so where my medieval counterparts in Europe, even after the Second World War could claim both Germany's territory and Germany's history for the task of writing a history of, let's say, the Roman Empire or other medieval world. Um, so this is, you know, post-war into the partition. You could still, based in London, based in Italy, you could still study Germany. You could still go, you could still do archival work. You could still think about it. And vice versa, German scholars were still able to study the history of Europe after a world war. That's not what the partition has gifted us, you know, those of us who are from the subcontinent. These are limitations, uh, not just of mine, but much of scholarship that is in this book, because many of the scholars of my book are in Delhi, are in Kolkata or Calcutta. Um, and these are limitations that I in a way, I began with them, right? Um, and so what ends up happening, let me be very sincere, um, is a lot of Google Maps satellite images, uh, a lot of YouTube videos, a lot of film videos. Um, I actually drew a lot from figuring out where certain films were, what do you, as they call in our lingo, picturized. <laughs> and, and just, you know, because there's a lot of um, medieval backstories to Bollywood cinema and so you can actually see them obviously there are some other tourist videos that are available I mean not some lots of tourist videos so I spent a lot of time on YouTube I spent a lot of time in digital archives in a sense looking at kind of scan documents um, um, I, I leaned a lot on my friends to provide me some of these things um, so there is a type of, I guess, distal reading and distal archival work that still could be made possible um, in order to kind of circumvent some of these barriers. And what is it then about the medieval period, which you have returned to again and again in, in the book, that that is so generative for you? If, those are those those are the limitations you're working with, but also um, the questions you began with are, are the questions that you're after. Uh, and what what about the medieval period is generative for you and for those of us who are, as you describe us, quote, post-colonized historians who have inherited the colonial episteme? Um, what is what is there for you? I mean, it, well, one, I'm trained in that field, so that's that's what I. I do for a living, but I think there, there's something else that's incredibly important. I think for much of the decolonial world, it's colonial. It's the colonial powers that are the question mark. So if you if you think about you know from the perspective of Kampala or the perspective of Accra, it's actually colonialism, British or French colonialism, that provides a kind of juncture through which nationalist and post-nationalist historiographies have to move through. Um, it's actually unique the case, I think so, it's actually unique the, uniquely the case that in India it's not the British colonial period uh, that is at stake, 
but it's actually the medieval period, the pre-colonial, with the Muslim, what I call Muslim medieval, that's at the question mark. That's the the thing that has to be digested or 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 undigested has to be vomited out. Um, and I think that's the case that the medieval, you know, 1000 to 1800 becomes the, the kind of fulcrum for national definition. In case of Pakistan, it's by its absence because Pakistan, um, as I tried to show in my first book, makes a pivot to the eighth century and basically bypasses the whole, all of the medieval world and says, no, 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 we, we were founded, our citizenship, our ideas, our, our ideological basis is this, you know, 17 year old general Muhammad bin Qasim and, and that's it. So the only dot that needs to be connected is 1947 and 712. And we're, so on the Pakistan sense, there is a absence of time. And on the India sense, there is a preponderance of time over the overwhelming necessity of time in of the 1000 to 1800. So whether it's Aurangzeb's uh, interpretation of Aurangzeb, interpretation of Akbar, interpretation of, you know, Mahmoud Ghaznavi or uh, anyone else, um, that's what the national projects, that's what the political language has to contend with. Um, and not at all with any British colonial um, governor general or, um, you know, even Jallianwala Bagh massacre becomes a easily assimilated, you know, um, kind of a Disney fied version of it. Um, and 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 hence it's the the this 1000 to 1800 period um is is somehow central to both of these communities both of the communities in india and pakistan now in bangladesh it's slightly different because bangladesh has to kind of contend with 71 in in a much more central way in their national politics uh but i i'm really i've been following some of the work in bangladesh um by bangladesh scholars and it, it does seem like the earlier Muslim period is starting to gain significance in that conversation, much like the conversation that happened in Pakistan. So if, if that's part of what is at stake in um, some of the questions you you end with, then taking Hindustan as, as this place of, of loss, this site, this question, you refer in the book to India, then, at, in contrast, perhaps, as a semantic label, um, particularly as concerns your work as an intellectual historian. I was really curious about how much of this intellectual history is a matter of semantics for you, or of what Anson Robinbach, for instance, has called semantic stockpiles, um, these sort of congealed things um, that then can perhaps be excavated the, the way one would a text. I mean, I, I think there's, there, that, that, that's a great question. And I think one can think of it in, in, in a couple of ways. One is that any history of concepts that one we might attempt um, will have to go through a lexical or semantic register to begin with, um, just in terms of the history of ideas part of it. Uh, we we want to kind of figure out what the contours of a concept world is. Um, but I mean, something that I say in the... I, I, <laughs> I have a habit of forgetting everything I write immediately, but something I think I said in early in the book is that, you know, how do we write a history of Hindustan when we don't actually remember forgetting Hindustan, right? 
And so to me, the challenge wasn't that I was tracing a life of a concept. The, the challenge for me was that I was tracing a, an idea that is in, that its existence and its erasure are both absent, right? So it's not like, well, finally, we can kind of figure out something about this thing that we know for sure we used to have and we don't anymore. And here comes Manon with a book about it. And, you know, voila. Uh, but it's like, um, I thought we ha we know what this is. So this is not what Manon is talking about. And I, I thought we, we never lost it. So why is it about that? And so, 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 so that's the kind of a, 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 a shifting kind of um, baseline for even thinking about a concept history. Now, the way that I approached this question was was actually to draw then a very, very narrow um, field in which I would ask it, right? Because one could ask and think about the word Hindustan in classical music and would, would have a very different genealogy. It would have, actually, its efflorescence would be post-1950 in many ways. And the diaspora would probably be the one of the major sites for thinking about Hindustani music. Um, um, and if I said, oh, let me also look at uh, literature or let me also look at um, maybe food, um, all of these register would have very different teleologies in terms of when we can say the concept comes to prominence or has the widest or the shortest kind of bandwidth, um, but also would not intersect with the political history in any way, shape, or form that would be discernible to us. Um, however, I thought, and this is really up for the readers to decide if I thought so correct or not, I thought historians would be able to tie me to political history in a much more granular sense. And thus, the arrival or the departure of Hindustan within historical texts would let me map it to a type of political history that also responds to these disappearances. Um, and that's why the, it's 1947 is actually not the end point of my, uh, my query. It's actually just the first decade of the 20th century when you know the, the loss of Hindustan actually occurs. It doesn't occur in 1947. It occurs in you know, 1908, 1909. Um, and so it's, it's really by focusing on a very specific register, I was able to trace a, 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 a I guess like a sliver of this, uh, of the idea of Hindustan. Uh, but much more can and should be done to think about it, though my sense would be that those are very different ideas of Hindustan than the Hindustan that I'm tracing. And on this question of, of what precisely you're after, um, you, you, you write in, in your book, quote, as an intellectual historian, uh, you're, you're pursuing primarily how and why what happened was understood to have happened and what that understanding did to the craft of history writing itself, end, end quote. You're a historian, you're reading historians, and both you and your, your subjects are explicitly concerned with, this, with the question of politics. And so elsewhere you use the phrase, quote, the truth of history in a very specific way. You're talking about it in a political sense. You're in that moment in the book writing about the reinscription of place names and entire histories by governments in the subcontinent with explicitly exclusionary aims. And so I'm wondering then if what you're on is um, unstable ground that is necessarily unstable because that is precisely the point 
how does your project, which self-consciously sidesteps the Rankian one, but also sidesteps, as you said, much of today's historical discipline, understand that unstable thing as well as something seemingly concrete as you put it, the, the truth of history in the place that is now called something else, but what was called Hindustan. If the stability of that truth is just as important as the instability of something like Hindustan. Um, again, thank you. That's a you know really important question. Um, I must say that um, I I wrestled with it on a couple of scales. I think in the writing of the book. Um, first is uh, I you know the idea for what the task of history writing is um, allows me to think of something called the truth of history. So by by kind of examining the let's just call it the product of this ethics or the product of this intellectual commitment to tell a history um, i can then deflect that question of the truth of history onto that product and i can say okay how 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 was the the mere fact quote unquote fact how was evidence how was narration um pursued uh, within this this work and so my task as a historiographer of historiography um, becomes more of a kind of guide through this this shifting landscape as you're you're titling it, um, which is not to say in this no in this moment as we live in of of quote unquote fake news and post truth and all of these things that the idea of the fact itself the truth itself is unimportant or, or can be sidestepped. In fact, you cannot sidestep the idea of the truth of it. The problem, um, there's just two, two kind of, one, one perhaps philosophical and one practical problem that I, I was confronted with. On the first end, you know, for a very long time, and this grew from my perhaps deep, but perhaps still incomplete study of 1992 Babri Masjid and what historians tried to do in both in the lead up to 1992 and after 1992. So Indian historians writing in the late 80s, 88, 88, 89, 1991, uh, when the question of the Babri Masjid and the Yatra for fundraising for the demolition of the Masjid were public, um, public processes. So what were the historians doing? Well, they were producing facts. They were saying, look, here's a document that says for sure, for sure, that this was not a known site of Ram's birth. There's a document that says a Babur never really even came to Ayodhya, if ever. Um, you know, uh, so they produce a lot of facts. Um, we, we know for sure that they did it. We know for sure that these materials were published in not only newspapers and, and such a wide circulation, but obviously scholarly uh, venues. I wasn't around to have listened the kind of radio or television, but I'm assuming that also happened. Now, 92 happened, right? The mosque was torn down. And just in 2020, the Indian Supreme Court finally said that, yeah, so for sure, God can be born and can be born in this precise space that, you know, held the mosque at some point. Um, what happened after 1992? Well. We, we had really important works by historians, uh, Irfan Habib, uh, Gyan Pandey, etc. That uh, Peter Vanderveer, Thomas Boonsham Hansen, you know, that came after 1992 and then said, okay, well, 
the question of the fact wasn't only about the kind of fact of the history, that is the fact of the early 16th century, but the fact of RSS and the fact of Hindu Parivar and the fact of Hindutva's rise, right? So now there are other facts, um, you know, the fragment um, of community, you know, in the communalism book, there's like this idea of the Hindi public that is looking at facts, not just in their isolation of what happened in, in during Babur's history, but what happened in 47 or what happened in 60s or what happened in 80s. So the fact of their contemporary world, we saw a Muslim atrocity or we hate Muslims because of X, Y, and Z reasons. That fact triumphs whatever historical fact that a historian was able to present to a public. So what happens in 1992, as far as I can make sense of it and learn from it, is that the narration of the fact and the fact are not the same thing. Even if the narration and the, uh, is, is going towards the same kind of teleological or explanatory goal. Um, so by writing a history of historiography in a sense, or a history of historians narrating fact, one of the things that I wanted to show is that I wanted to bring the presence of these various historians and histories into our focus. I wanted us to understand that we cannot simply rely on a, a quote unquote fact in order to uh, displace or even make unbalanced a narrative that is in the public sphere. It, it doesn't matter to that narrative's wholeness if a historian stands up and says, well, well, actually, you know, Aurangzeb only uh, implemented jizya in, in one or two centers of political power and has had no other mechanism even of, of, of jizya outside of those things doesn't, you know, that doesn't, that quote unquote fact that I can say, I can cite some Fatawa Alamgiri actually doesn't make any difference to the narrative that is being used because it will be countered by seemingly other facts. And, you know, there's no, there's no kind of um, light between the two. And the discursive game in the sense of political power relies on immediacy of expertise and relies on immediacy of how this narrative can be um, best utilized. And so how quickly can, so the historian says, well, look, I'm gonna de dedicate the last, last six years of writing a history of Aurangzeb and I will really finally, <laughs> you know, prove that this, what was the true, and, and you know, in six years, the world is way different as in like the, 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 the pace of the discursive battle um, doesn't actually fit the ways in which we operate as, as scholars and, and should remain, uh, we should remain in, the, in the, the business that we're in. I think for me, the question was, if I could show the, the, the ethical claim that, that operated upon historians at moments of pressure, moments, junctures where different worlds kind of were possible and the historians were trying to gravitate towards one, that we take from this a different lesson, not a lesson about a fact, not a lesson about a past, not a lesson about like once there was Hindustan, but a lesson about a future, that we ought to think about our practice from that ethical standpoint, 
because we have a history, not of facts, but of ethical resistance to various types of narratives, not simply in the modern sense, but also some of the people who are writing, who are in my text, who are writing um, you know, within imperial courts or writing within courtly culture and, and are still saying, you know, yes, I understand the Sultan can kill me or have my head, but the reason I will still write my history in such a way is that this history is only for those who come after me. This is not for me and the Sultan. This is not for me to write a glowing profile of the, you know, of the ruler of the day, but it's because my ethical responsibility is to a future. And I think that's what I wanted to show us as historians, that there is a ethical um, claim the future is making on us that makes our relationship to fact and truth uh, much, much more, in fact, even more um, important than we have understood it, generally speaking. And in your book, you arrive there, as you just put it, through telling a history of narration itself. And of course, when you when you articulate your project, you write, as I just mentioned, how and why what happened was understood to have happened. Being uh, being at the center of it, as you just said, of course, that too is a narrative. And you're going in your book from text to text, from archive to archive, from historian to historian, and you're building a narrative of the history of narration. Um, when that kind of doubling happens, it seems to me like it would be sort of difficult to hold on to something. How how did you go about moving from point to point then if you know that what you're doing is also in, in the realm of, of narrative history, um, even if narrative is also your, your subject? I mean, I think the challenge that, um, you know, from Hayden White, et cetera, when the kind of turn happened, the, the, you know, both the turn towards narrative history and both the critique of narrative history, it was always been that, you know, in a sense, how, what, how do we make transparent as historians um, the, the domain in which our narrative has to function, uh, the claim that which our narrative has to make? And of course, I mean, Michel de Certeau had a beautiful line, I think, in, in his um, writing history book, uh, I say, was where, you know, he rails for pages about the word we, you know, the third person, uh, third, uh, third person impersonal perspective and saying, like, this is, you know, this is horrible. This is, this is, this is what allows for the kind of narrativity argument to take hold. Um, and I, 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 I do agree with it. Um, I think the answer to me was, as I kind of mentioned or hinted at just earlier, is that if we have, we do have an understanding, if not a commitment to some idea of philosophy of history, right? What, what history is, how does it move? Um, why do things happen? And why do we write about whatever things happened? Um, if there's some philosophy of history, then there is an ethical claim built into that philosophy of history. And the, the burden that post-colonized historians like myself face is that that ethical claim um, is built on the Western philosophy of history. Their ethical claim is built on the dehumanization of people like me, you know, of places like from, from where I come from. So I can't actually stand with that philosophy of history. I can't, 
I can't say that that represents a relationship that I want to have with a past or a community. Um, but there we get into this idea of universalisms and history as a discipline that claims both a specificity of logic, but also claims at the same time a disciplinary force that says that, yeah, a historian of Germany is the same as a historian of America, is the same as a historian of Pakistan, and so on and so forth, because they're all disciplinary historians and can speak the same language and have language in, in kind of metaphoric sense and have the same claims, um, truth claims. Um, and I think what part of the attempt that I had was to, by using actually Farishta to show how the European project of creating a universal history and a universal philosophy of history was intimately predicated on their understanding of what Farishta was writing 150 years before them through the, the renditions of Farishta into English and French and um, uh, German and so on. And so that the, the base of this universalism has then another historical vision buried in it. Now, this is, again, a little different than some of the earlier um, struggles that uh, scholars from the subaltern spaces have had with the philosophy of history. So the Pesh Chakrabarti's provincializing Europe, etc. They are coming at it from, or even Sanjay Subramaniam, um, uh, David Shulman, and Diana Rao's uh, important work, um, Textures of Time, where they're coming at it from kind of expanding the realm of the evidence um, in order to bring the kind of um, bring what constitutes um, history making into into a broader sphere I guess um, so my approach is slightly different though I, I share the spirit of the argument which is that I wanted to both unearth a type of proto history within Europe's own um, kind of basement as it were um, but not stop there to say something like the East has already always contributed to the West stuff like that. But rather to say that, you know, actually we need to keep going down that path. So why stop at Farishta? What was Farishta reading? What were the historians he was reading? What were their philosophies of history? How does Farishta synthesize a philosophy of history when he's reading historians that he separated by from two or three or four or 500 years? So in a sense, it becomes, a, 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 for me, it becomes a project that highlights a, a type of ethics towards history writing that has persisted despite colonial um, rule in, in the subcontinent that, you know, where I'm familiar with, but I, I would venture also in other spaces where colonialism constitutes a type of rupture. Um, and it's the it was the kind of rec reclamation of that history that I was most invested in. Not not to again go back to it, but rather to say this urgency with which these historians were understanding their task um, is something that we can learn from in our own various urgencies that we face in the here and the now. And so. If part of what's at stake is the rupture or, as you just put it, separation between you and, and Firshta and then Firshta and the people he's writing about, can you say more about this 
incredible feeling of of distance that I I reading your book experienced with you if if I'm if I may it's really about what you call um in the book these colonial and, and immediately post-colonial historians of the medieval period experiencing their relationship with a quote deep past mm-hmm. that is the past of medieval Hindustan um because part of what you're doing is bringing those things into view part of what you're doing is making these things proximal and um sort of demystifying them in some ways but that's always based on the you know actual fact of that incredible distance can you say more about that feeling that at least as a reader really does seep through everything that you've been talking about yeah i mean so um you know the the there is no way that we can find synonyms for the experience that Farishta may be engaged in as a historian um, from a task that we may want to do. Or even, I mean, Farishta is very, very long time ago. Um, you know, one of the historians I, I, I looked at uh, was uh, Shafat Ahmed Khan, who was writing in the 1920s and the 30s, um, who was writing precisely at the, this juncture when the, the question of political partitioning of the subcontinent is rising as a, as, a, as, a, as a kind of demand or even as an idea. And again, for Shafad Ahmed Khan as a historian, um, the, the immediate past, right, is, that is the 1857 to 1920 versus the, the durable, the, the deep past of the 12th century, of the 13th century, are both at stake in the future that he's that he wants to prevent from happening, which is the partition. Um, and very similarly, another historian closer to our times is Muhammad Habib, who I, I cite in the book, who, who gives the kind of address to the, uh, the Indian National Congress, uh, Indian um, uh, Congress of History um, in December of 1947, after the partition has happened, and who is now trying to explain that actually the deep past, as in the 13th, the 12th, or 13th century, proves that the immediate partition of the subcontinent is a presentist, foolhardy uh, position, that actually we have a long history where this kind of political violence and this kind of political uh, partitioning has no space. We, we, we can't find no antecedents to it. That's a rupture in, in this longer, deep history. So in other words, while we may not have any kind of experiential uh, awareness of the ways in which Farista or a historian of the 13th century go about their world that they are trying to explain for their readers or the readers of their future, um, what we can recognize, and this is really what I gravitated towards in my own writing, hopefully, is we can recognize the sense of alterity from the future that's happening, right? So it's not simply that we can't figure out that what our relationship is to the past. It's literally we 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 don't want the future that is being that we are being confronted with. Um, and for me, the future is not simply partition of the subcontinent. The future is is the kind of climate degradation that we face as a collective, um, and its impact on the people and places that I. I'm from and where my my loved ones live and will continue to live, and and so that that 
future forces upon me a type of alterity that I don't know how to reconcile. And it also forces upon me a type of um, ethical engagement with the project of history writing that I am trying to do in this book. And talking of that project then, um, we've been talking a little bit about disciplinarity and a feature of disciplinarity, of course, is its ability to reproduce itself. And so I'm wondering then, um, as a graduate student, as someone who's teaching right now, how do you hope we might teach something like your book or, or the, the, me the methods that you bring to bear on, on your subject um, to our undergraduates, to, to graduate students like myself, um, if the discipline is to, is to take up some of these provocations, some of these, some of these invocations that you've made? I mean, I think um, at least in the book, there are hints that, you know, there's a, there's a kind of commitment to thinking about decolonization as a, as a praxis for history writing and what, what that might look like for, uh, especially for someone like me, who, you know, who's a pre-modern person. Um, and I think that that might that might be a useful entrepoint into how do we kind of think of the larger issues that the book raises. But you know, I, I um, uh, I've never taught my work, um, but I did lead a kind of a conversation with young students in Lahore over the pandemic, where they read chapters of the book with other other material that I, I thought would be useful for them. And, and one of the things that I learned about kind of their, from their reading of uh, some of the work here was that um, the, the historiographic sort of demand that the colonial period and the pre-colonial period and the post-colonial period exist in some kind of a silo, whether ideological or argumentative or um, evidentiary, um, is the greatest hurdle to thinking about a project like myself. I think that's what trips people the most. And if that's, and that's what I tried to address by structuring my chapters in a very particular way. I, the chapters are structured with all um, temporalities in the same chapter rather than a chapter of 13th century and a chapter on the 16th century and a chapter of 17th, 18th century, uh, which would have been the kind of a traditional way of <clears throat> shaping the argument that I was trying to do. Uh, but I chose instead to basically kind of have each chapter move backwards and forwards in time. So you kind of start in the, you know, early colonial period, and then you go back to the 13th, 14th centuries, and then you fast forward again to the 17th century at the end. And part of that was this effort, I think very, um, obviously very deliberate, but this effort to, to break some of these historiographic silos of the ways in which you write, but also the ways in which you teach. Um, so if one is teaching a course in modern South Asia, um, you know, it's very rare that they, anyone would assign any text that is before 1857 or before 1770s, you know, 1770s, etc. And I think that we we do need to kind of work towards, at least at least in terms of um, thinking about it in a more um, more um, kind of sympathetic way, sympathetic to to um, why the past continues to be relevant through different periods. 
In your afterword, you list the Hindustani historians who challenged the transformation of the subcontinent into, quote, the India that colonial powers made, filled with cliched natives, invented temporalities, and religious antagonisms, end quote. And so it seems to me that part of the specificity of the problem in your book is that what characterized their work specifically as a site of struggle is that they, to quote you again, quote, critically grappled with the question of Muslim belonging because they, quote, foresaw the arc of history, tilting the subcontinent toward violence, end quote. And importantly, as, as you've said, they were writing in a period of violent social transformation that created the conditions that required them to look into the future as they wrote about the past. And so alongside this very powerful formulation, you, like many historians, have lost things, things that people have forgotten they've lost. You explicitly reject the romanticization of this past as well in favor of reimagining it. And so to return to you being someone who's narrating narrators and, and in a book that is peopled the way that yours is very explicitly, and that is also alive with these painful questions, how did you square this circle of reimagination without romanticizing um, in an unhelpful way the, the kinds of stakes of, of the future that the people you're writing about were after? Thank you, Disha. That's a great question. Um, I, I, I want to say something polemical, I guess, for the first, first part of it. I think one of the weapons that colonial episteme wielded against subcontinental history was nostalgia. And this was a very deliberate weapon. This was a weaponization of the past. So people who were um, conscripted, and I talk about one such instance in the book, and I will be talking about other instances in my next book, were wielded to you know, make a list of all the forgotten Havelis of Delhi or Lahore, make a list of the families that have been eradicated and their traces have been wiped out. Now, this was a colonial project to create the very instance of in the instance of the 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 devastation that they did to delhi population in 1857 uh, a narrative of nostalgia of a of a delhi that's vanished and i never connected the dot until i started teaching kant in and and that's where it is. The, the, the native peoples of the world that vanish and they leave behind a nostalgia. And Kant has something very important to say about nostalgia. And nostalgia is the weapon. So when someone says to me, and many people have said to me in the aftermath of this book, but also in a previous article of mine, that the only access me as a, as a Muslim, denotive Muslim, has to Muslim histories is nostalgic, recuperative, and romantic. Now, none of my peers who write about uh, Machiavelli, say, and have a job in a history or Italian romantic studies department in the US or in Europe anywhere will ever be accused of nostalgia or of romanticization. You could read any issue of European history in which there will be detailed life worlds down to incredible specificity of people who have left no trace in this world until a researcher 
digs them up from some archive, some hidden valley. And not a single connection to the ethnicity and gender of the researcher to the ethnicity gender of the subject. And it's the, the romanticization of this recuperative effort will be made. So that's the first thing to think about, right? That the question of romanticization is when someone decides to say, well, Africa played a role before Europe in the world. So that's really romantic, right? Like Sanghor was romantic, right? Um, Nehru is romantic when he says about the wonder, you know, about the kind of his, when he writes his kind of glimpses of world history. It's all romantic. Romance and nostalgia is, is part of the colonial episteme, and it remains a way in which scholarship is degraded uh, in our contemporary moment. Um, I think the, the, the task that I had for myself is because I honestly, is, I don't see my work in any way, shape or form revealing something that wasn't revealed in hundreds of other books. In fact, there's so much in this book that just isn't exist, uh, as in, I, have, I don't mention it, that's in the works of my peers and my teachers. So this is in no way is, is a kind of a lost history of the type that one would imagine that, you know, I'm actually bringing to get back something that people didn't know. Um, but the way I squared the circle, as you mentioned, or you, your question poses, was that I, I, I wrote from that space of alterity, not only to the past, but to the future, as I mentioned earlier. And I think the, if there is a cradicor or if there is something heartfelt in, in the moment of writing it, it's really, it's really coming from that space that when I look at what's been happening in India and Pakistan and Bangladesh in the last few years in terms of targeting of minorities, in terms of lynchings, in terms of, you know, kind of a, a steady progress towards um, genocidal violence towards minorities, then the question of difference becomes incredibly important for me to think about. If if I look ahead and I, as I mentioned earlier, we, we look at a, at, a, at a world that is drying up faster than any other place on this planet. The water is evaporating and the sea levels are rising. And there is no space infrastructure wise that the displacement of 300 million people can in any way, shape or form be prevented as early as 2030. So nine years from now, then there is a a type of, I think, urgency for us to find solutions, find ways of thinking against that difference that um, I'm invested in. I'm invested in that part. But that the, the solution isn't we appoint a emperor, Adil Shah II, very learned person, <laughs> loved music, loved differences, commissioned Farishta to write this history, and if only someone like Ibrahim Adil Shah II was the emperor of subcontinent, we would all be able to live in peace and harmony and the climate crisis would be solved. No, that's not, that's nonsense. That's not what I'm trying to say. What I'm trying to say is that people had differences before, people had precarity before, people had 
the horrors of colonialism and the horrors of partition before them. And people wrote with that kind of deliberate engagement with that future. And that's all I want us to do. I want us to look forward and, and engage with it in whatever ways we can as, as you know, as gullible um, and, and I guess wrongheaded as we all are.